Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. 293 people died from the coronavirus in California yesterday, and more than 50,000 new cases were reported, setting new daily records as the virus surges, and that's straining our healthcare system. I want to be very clear. Our hospitals are under siege, and our model shows no end in sight. That's Los Angeles County Health Services Director Dr. Christina Galley, who mapped out a frightening future. The worst is still before us, and I want to share a little bit about what we can expect. A hospital system and an emergency medical services system that cannot provide the level of care that we all expect or would want for ourselves or our loved ones if we need it. This includes care for both those with COVID as well as those without COVID who have other illnesses or injuries. This means that patients will wait longer to receive care. It will result in our dedicated healthcare workers who have been on the front line this entire time, taking care of more patients than is safe to do so. California is averaging more than 35,000 new cases a day. Health officials estimate 12% of them, 4,200, end up in hospitals. Early in the pandemic, some grocery store chains offered employees hazard pay to compensate essential workers laboring under hazardous health conditions. That mostly ended around the summer. Now the city of Long Beach is looking to bring back hazard pay and make it a requirement for any large chain store operating in the city. KCRW's Angel Carreras reports. The Long Beach City Council voted unanimously Tuesday to draft an emergency ordinance that would require all large grocery companies in the city to pay their employees an extra four bucks an hour for the continued risk workers face in the pandemic. This would apply only to companies with at least 300 employees nationwide. Think Vons, Ralphs, Albertsons, not mom and pops. Four dollars is a significant boost, by the way. Back in March, firms like Kroger's were paying just two dollars more per hour for what they called hero pay. Once the language is all finalized and the ordinance is approved, grocery store workers would get the $4 bump for at least 120 days. And the LA City Council is working on something similar. Several council members, including Council President Noreen Martinez, want the city attorney to draft an ordinance that would require grocery stores with 300 or more employees to pay an additional $5 per hour. For the California Report, I'm Angel Carreras. Many Americans, including hundreds of thousands of people in California, are hoping for more than just money in the new relief package being hashed out in Congress. They'll also be hoping they won't have to pay back unemployment money they've been overpaid by their state's unemployment agencies. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin brings us the story of one person facing this imminent problem. The pandemic was like a tsunami in my life, like it washed away everything I'd worked for. Sam lives in the East Bay with her husband and two sons. 
She's worked for decades as an independent contractor, most recently in the events industry. She's asked to be referred to simply as Sam because she has a very distinct name and says she's had nightmares about retribution from the state's Employment Development Department. Like so many across the country, all her career opportunities evaporated because of COVID-19. And for the first time in her life, she filed for unemployment. I was put in the PUA category. PUA, that stands for Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. And I did start getting benefits. PUA is one of the special programs Congress introduced as part of the Federal CARES Act, meant to create a safety net for the huge chunk of workers who weren't eligible for regular unemployment, like Sam. First, she qualified for the minimum PUA payment, $167 a week. But then EDD increased her payment to $271. That benefit figure was based on the gross income amount that Sam had provided when she applied. And they did sometime like in April or May, say, okay, what is your net income? Meaning the money Sam earned after deductions. Unlike regular unemployment benefits, which are based on gross income, the Department of Labor requires that PUA be based on net income instead. It's a common mistake, says Daniela Urban, founder of the Center for Workers' Rights. Often, if they're just asking simple questions to EDD without context of which program they're asking about, and and they just say what income is used, they're going to be told that it is gross because that's what regular UI uses. And even EDD admitted this is an easy error to make. Complicating things even further, says Sam. I hadn't done my taxes because the taxes were delayed and we filed. The deadline was July 15th. Meaning she wasn't exactly sure about what her net earnings were at the time, so she had to estimate as best as she could. The problem was that my estimation was off. And about a month ago, EDD gave her 21 days to provide proof of those earnings. Otherwise, they said, You may have to repay what you are not entitled to receive. Sam says there was around $9,000 difference between her actual net income and the estimate she originally gave to EDD. And here's the thing. If Sam had been getting regular unemployment and EDD overpaid her, but she could prove she didn't maliciously inflate her income, she could appeal. And there's a chance she might not be responsible for reimbursing the state. But as Daniela Urban explains, PUA is different. Because unlike state unemployment benefits, these federal benefits... They are not waivable by the state. Meaning Sam could be on the hook for the difference. For them to come back eight months later, not two months, not three months, the whole thing feels punitive, frankly. You feel like you're in a labyrinth, and if you make a wrong turn, it's over for you. So what are Sam's options? EDD did confirm that currently any PUA overpayments can't be waived, but said it will work with people on repayment plans if they need them. There is at least one congressional bill currently pending that seeks to protect people in Sam's situation, but it's still in early stages. Right now, the PUA program is set to expire the day after Christmas. Even if Congress or the state were to step in with more funding, Sam will still owe whatever EDD overpaid her. And if the PUA program is re-upped in 2021, she'll be getting even less in benefits than she was before. For the California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin. 
Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Now let's turn to a part of the justice system that often doesn't get as much attention. Next year, there are big changes coming to how California deals with young people convicted of crimes. Starting July 1st, the Department of Juvenile Justice, that's the youth equivalent of the state prison system, will stop accepting virtually all new wards, leaving the state's 58 counties to figure out how to handle those young people. Eventually, Governor Gavin Newsom plans to shutter the Department of Juvenile Justice entirely. He's says it's too much about punishment and not enough on turning young people's lives around. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos takes a closer look. Elijah Ramirez was 16 years old when he arrived at one of California's three remaining state-run juvenile lockups just before Christmas in 2014. He was there to begin a sentence for attempted murder. I came in there with trauma already, as it is. Um, This place didn't help me with that trauma. It intensified it. During the incident that landed him in DJJ, a street fight in Salinas, Ramirez was shot four times, leaving him temporarily paralyzed. When he arrived at the state facility, a two-hour drive from his hometown, he expected to be able to continue his medical treatment and physical therapy. But since he ended up locked in a battle with staff over where he should be housed and what treatment they would provide. So here I am, 16 years old. Mind you, I'm a child. I had just been shot. I'm locked up now. Ramirez says it was an awful three and a half years. His story, which he relayed last year after his release, is familiar to advocates who have been agitating for changes at the state system for years. That system is generally reserved for young people convicted of very serious crimes like assault and murder. Those calls for change have become louder over the past two decades, as youth crime in California plummeted by 80 percent, says Renee Menard of the pro-reform group Center on Criminal and Juvenile Justice. That drop in population means that on average, California is now spending a staggering $316,000 a year on each young person at DJJ. Here's Menard. DJJ has gone through cycles of abuse and superficial reforms for decades. We've been a proponent for its closure because the system has repeatedly been unable to 
address its inherent flaws. Those flaws, Menard says, include moving young people far away from their families and communities and into an institutional setting that sets them up for failure. DJJ has long failed young people and their home communities, so we're excited to see an opportunity to bring them closer to home and in smaller settings. Of course, all this begs the questions. Where will they go? And will it actually be better? Much of these answers will depend on the state's probation chiefs who oversee juvenile justice at the county level. Kirk Haynes is probation chief in Fresno County, which usually has 35 to 40 young people in the state system at a time. You know, what we try to do is to build a system where we're serving young people in a way that we're not just looking at only the the crime that was committed, but we also look at why did they come to the point where they where those crimes were being committed. Haynes says he's already talking to neighboring counties about the possibility of regional partnerships and is working with the University of Cincinnati to develop new programs and approaches. Some counties are going even further. Katie Miller is juvenile probation chief in San Francisco, which usually has just a couple of kids in the state system at any given time. Miller is not only planning for the closure of DJJ, but also of San Francisco's local juvenile hall. The Board of Supervisors here voted to shutter the lockup by the end of 2021, meaning the county needs to figure out how it will securely house young people who get into trouble and what alternatives to incarceration they can create. The question becomes not now what don't we do, but what do we do, right? What do we build in its place as a system for our young people that meets their needs and promotes community safety? Miller says that doesn't mean simply moving kids from the state lockup to one closer to home. It means reimagining what a safe, secure environment looks like for young people who can't go home and building a system that adequately supports those who can. To do that, she says, local leaders will need to get input from young people like Elijah Ramirez, who have been there before. For The California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. A lot of California history is the story of booming population growth. But according to new state figures, California's population recently grew at the slowest rate in more than a century. KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer reports. Between July 1st, 2019 and July 1st of this year, California's population grew by just over 21,000, the lowest growth rate since 1900. The numbers reflect increased deaths from COVID-19, fewer births, and fewer immigrants arriving. Plus, more people leaving California for other states than moving here. Among the nine Bay Area counties, five had modest population gains, while four, Napa, Sonoma, Marin, and San Mateo, lost people. Statewide, Butte County experienced the biggest population drop by far, a reflection of the devastating wildfires in 2018. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. And Los Angeles County had the greatest net loss of population out of any county in the state, 40,000 people. But I really haven't noticed it living here in L.A. And that's the California Report for Thursday, December 17th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com, and Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from DrinkHint.com. 
Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 